I put in here the uh, did I put the P I put the PDF file and the article. You can look at either one, and this is really cool because um, I, I talk to a lot of people in the Torah community. They still don't get this. They don't know what it means uh, that the sin of seeing your father's nakedness. Okay, I'm just going to tell you. Well, we can talk more about this afterwards, but I really um, want to go through this. So let's get started. It's called His Father's Nakedness, The Curse of Ham Finally Explains. Ham had sex with his father's wife. There it is. Hopefully you weren't drinking from a cup of coffee or chewing on an overpriced blueberry scone while reading that, as I would have either choked or spit up all over the computer screen. At any rate, you have scoured the matrix for an answer, and now you found it. Everyone else either beats around the bush, outright denies it, or simply devotes their entire life to keeping you in the dark. It is the very job of gatekeepers to overpopulate the, hall, the halls of academia and drown out the competition with the loudest speaking voice. Diplomas are printed and framed in such a way that you haven't the faintest clue that the sons of Cain still rule the world. But if you do, they won't grant you one. And no, I'm not bitter. Time is short and the whispering things need brought out into the open. Everybody may want to rule the world, like the Tears for Fear song, but the puppet masters belong to a singular family. You probably noticed that I said his father's wife rather than mother, and that is because we're being technical rather than figurative. Noah's wife may have been Shem and Japheth's biological mother, but there was no relation to Ham whatsoever. So I know this is a little bit of review for you guys, but just so you guys know, I actually wrote this one uh, a few months before I wrote the last one. So this is kind of like, this one goes before it. Don't take my word for it. For now, you'll just have to make a mental note of my conclusions, as another paper will require devotion to Ham's genealogy, which we just went through. One detail at a time, something which you are likely aware of, is the story concerning Noah's drunkenness, as it comes down to us in the Hebrew Masoretic text. But here it is again. Anyways, we'll start the present narrative from this template and then move forward accordingly. This comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness and noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him i don't know why i didn't put that in red right there hey, and he said Chris, go ahead you're getting you're a little choppier slow and a little robotic there on the uh internet connection okay all right Am I coming in clear right now? Am I am I sounding okay? Or am I still? Uh, do I need to fix my connection? Yeah, yeah, you're still getting a little choppy. Okay, Dave says sounds good. Okay, sounds good everyone to me. else. Is... Rob okay, sounds well, okay. So, oh, so Rob sounds choppy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that I'm going to keep good. reading and. You do sound a little choppy to me, too. All right. Okay. Well, let's keep reading. I took the red marker out on two fundamental details. 
the first thing we see is that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. It's the little details. Really, I never noticed it until now. This very moment, Ham being the father of Canaan is directly associated to his seeing the nakedness of his father. And there you have it. Canaan is a result of Noah's nakedness. Confused how that works? No, I'm not changing the rules of sex education. We're getting to it. Ham immediately leaves his father's tent after fathering Canaan and tells his two brothers about the committed deed. That would have been his way of saying, I'm the big boy. I'm in charge now. Patriarch of humanity am I. So from now on, you'll have to do what I say or something or other. Way to go, kicking Noah while he's down. Ham. Shem and Jebeth responded to Ham's cockadoodle proclamation by respectfully covering their father's nakedness. The shame that has come upon him, that is, whatever the outcome. While their father and mother are still passed out upon the bed, both brothers lay a garments upon their shoulders and walked in backwards so as not to see her. The same account can be found in Jubilees. So where does this come from? This comes in Jubilees chapter 7, verses 6 through 13. And he rejoiced and drank of this wine, he and his children with joy. And it was evening, and he went into his tent, and being drunken, he lay down and slept, and was uncovered in his tent as he slept. And Ham saw Noah his father naked, and went forth and told his two brethren without. And Shem took his garment and arose, he and Japheth, and they placed the garment on their shoulders and went backward and covered the shame of their father, and their faces were backward. And Noah awoke from his sleep and knew all that his younger son had done unto him. And he cursed his son and said, Cursed be Canaan, and enslaved servant shall he be until his brethren. And he blessed Shem and said, Blessed be Yahuwah Elohim of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servants. Elohim shall enlarge Japheth, and Elohim shall dwell in the dwelling of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Ham knew that his father had cursed his younger son, and he was displeased that he had cursed his son. And he parted from his father, he and his sons with them, Cush and Mizraim, and Put and Canaan. If you think I have it all wrong concerning Ham's sin, and there was no possible way that he slept with Noah's wife, then try to explain the curse to follow. Should one of my sons see my plonker in the bedroom and then snicker about it in the hallway among his brothers, cursing that child and all the generations which would spring forth from that child seems wildly overreactive. Perhaps Noah was immorally loose behind the cannon being drunk, and Ham simply saw him, well, it says right there, but masturbating. We're all adults. Still overreactive. Truth is, Noah did no wrong here. He had a perfect right to be naked in his own tent. Contrarily, if my son were to rape my wife while we were incapacitated in bed, and now she were to be found pregnant with a child, his child, that would be fair reason for cursing, don't you think? It's what I think. My wife's own child would now be my grandchild. Excuse my post-babble German, but that's some seriously twisted foobar right there. It's not like I'm misrepresenting the language picture being presented to us either. All we need to do is flip over so many pages to Leviticus to see precisely what is being described. Same author, 
Moshe highlighted the story of Noah's nakedness in order to give visual content to the law of Yahuwah. Uncovering one's nakedness is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Take that one step further, and uncovering the nakedness of a married woman is uncovering the nakedness of her husband. That is, having sex with another man's wife is akin to having sex with the husband. But not even the father's wife goes unnoticed here. I've taken out the red marker again just to make that point known. So this comes from, oh, I gotta scroll all the way down here, Leviticus chapter 8, verses 6 through 20. None of you shall approach to any that is near of kin to him to uncover their nakedness. I am Yahuwah, the nakedness of, their, of thy father or the nakedness of thy mother. Shalt thou not uncover? She is thy mother. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not co- uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. The nakedness of thy sister, the daughter of thy father, or daughter of thy mother, whether she be born at home or born abroad, even their nakedness thou shalt not uncover. The nakedness of thy son's daughter, or, the, or of thy daughter's daughter, even their nakedness thou shalt not uncover, for theirs is thine own nakedness. Well, they, <laughs> they just go through, just, just so there's no exceptions, they, they make sure to cover every member of the household here. The, the nakedness of thy father's wife's daughter, begotten of thy father, she is thy sister. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's sister. She is thy father's near kinswoman. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy mother's sister, for she is thy mother's near kinswoman. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's brother. Thou shalt not approach to his wife. She is thine aunt. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy daughter-in-law. She is thy son's wife. Thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, neither shalt thou take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness, for they are her near kinswoman. It is wickedness. Neither shalt thou take a wife to her sister to vex her, to uncover her nakedness beside the other in her t- in her lifetime. And thou shalt not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is put apart for her uncleanness. Moreover, thou shalt not lie carnally with thy neighbor's wife to defile thyself with her. Leviticus 8, verses 6 through 20. And some people want the law done away with. I don't get it. Moshe comes across as repetitive, but only to mark off every box possible. No, you may not uncover the nakedness of your mother, your mother's sister, your father's sister, your brother's wife, or your wife's sister. Capiche? There are, of course, more references to uncovering a woman's nakedness in the law, specifically thy father's nakedness. Consider the the following passages. Leviticus 18.8 says, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's wife. It is thy father's nakedness. Leviticus 20, verses 11 and 19. And the man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovereth his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy father's sister, or of the sister of thy mother. For that man has uncovered the nakedness of one near um, akin. They shall bear their iniquity. I just thought of this. It's interesting. It says that he should be put, Ham wasn't put to death, but it says they should be put to death. Now that we have established the fact that Canaan was a rather obvious result of Ham's incest, we will have to hold off on the greater prophetic connotations, saving them for another paper. Mainly that the Canaanites possessed the very plot of land which Shem had inherited, 
it had been appropriated for the children of Abraham, aptly calling it Canaan. Oh, the chutzpah. The present implication is that Noah could no longer lay with his wife. Before the flood, Noah was polygamous. Oh, yes, he was. Afterwards, a plurality of wives not only became an impossibility, but as you will see for yourself, he was no longer capable of fulfilling Yahuwah's command and bringing forth more children upon the earth. Emzara was most likely put away for the remainder of their lives. It's not like there were other women to marry. Every living being with the Ruach of life had been destroyed in the floodwaters, save for the animals in the ark, the wives of his sons, and their children. And I guess I should maybe throw in King Og there. Noah continued another 350 years after the deluge, living 950 years in total. During this time, he became a winemaker. That means he lived a third of his life drinking wine, but with nobody to have sex with. You'd have to hate sex to disagree when I say that totally sucks. I base my assumption upon another account some 20 chapters later. It involves Reuben and Bilhah and reads, And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. Genesis thirty-five twenty-two. That's all we're given in the Hebrew Masoretic. Reuben simply lay with Jacob's concubine. There is a pregnant pause, and then the story simply continues on, leaving you to gasp and wonder at the implications. No wonder why so very few people know about it. A somewhat fuller account can be found in Jubilees. As you shall see, it explains the repercussions, or rather, precisely how Noah would have dealt with the same situation. So this is uh, Jubilee chapter 33, verses 2 through 12. Wow, we're reading a lot of scripture here tonight. I had forgotten there's so much in these articles. And Reuben saw Bilhah, Rachel's maid, the concubine of his father, bathing in water in a secret place, and he loved her, and he hid himself at night, and he entered the house of Bilhah at night, and he found her sleeping alone on a bed in her house. And he lay with her, and she awoke and saw, and behold, Reuben was lying with her in the bed, and she uncovered the border of her covering and seized him and cried out and discovered that it was Reuben. So she actually is doing the right thing there by Torah, by crying out. That's exactly what she should be doing. Shows that she did no wrong. And she was ashamed because of him and released her hand from him, and he fled. And she lamented because of this thing exceedingly and did not tell it to anyone. And when Yaakov returned and sought her, she said unto him, I am not clean for thee, for I have been defiled as regards thee. For Reuben has defiled me and has lain with me in the night. And I was asleep and did not discover until he uncovered my skirt and slept with me. And Jacob was, or Yaakov was exceedingly wroth with Reuben because he had lain with Bilhah, because he had uncovered his father's skirt. And Yaakov did not approach her again because Reuben had defiled her. And as for any man who uncovers his father's skirt, his deed is wicked exceedingly, for he is abominable before Yahuwah. So just the language there, his father's skirts. And as we know, the, the fathers don't wear a skirt. 
For this reason it is written and ordained on the heavenly tablets that a man should not lie with his father's wife, and should not uncover his father's skirt, for this is unclean. They shall surely die together, the man who lies with his father's wife, and the woman also, for they have wrought uncleanness on the earth. And there shall be nothing unclean before our Elohim in the nation which he has chosen for himself as a possession. And again, it is written a second time, Cursed be he who lieth with the wife of his father. There it is again. For he hath uncovered his father's shame. And all the holy ones of Yahuwah said, So be it, so be it. Jubilees 33, 2-12. You see, Reuben also uncovered his father's nakedness, his shame, his skirt. It has already been established here at Cosmology that the law of Yahuwah is eternal, and more importantly, that it predated Moshe, even creation. Therefore, you cannot tell me a father's nakedness does not apply to Ham, nor that the specific law written down for us in Leviticus has been done away with. If so, then you are choosing not to live according to the prayer, on earth as it is in heaven. Jubilees clarifies that the adultery is written and ordained on the heavenly tablets of above, telling us that the law delivered below on Sinai is practiced in the divine court, whether we agree to that justice system or not. In other words, having sex with your father's wife is still uncovering his nakedness. In any ways, it says right there in verse 9, and Yaakov did not approach her again because Reuben had defiled her. That's the immediate consequence. Like Noah with Emzara, Yaakov could no longer enjoy the company of Bilhah. Still need another example? Fine. After Absalom slept with his father's concubines in plain sight of Israel, 2 Samuel 16.22, David put them away as well. He never slept with them again. I would imagine if we're to live by anyone's example, save for the Messiah, obviously, then these three men, Noah, Yaakov, and David, will do just fine. Forgive me for not waiting while somebody disagrees. The longer consequence to Reuben's actions is that he lost his birthright. At a far earlier date, Cain was the firstborn and yet was never offered the birthright. If you've been reading my Serpent Seed papers, then you already know why. Canaan was cursed with servitude, whereas Ham's other children, still Serpent Seed, labored to snatch the kingdoms of the world from Shem and Japheth. Reuben simply lost his birthright to Yehuda. We can see the exact same thing play, uh, being played out in Isaiah chapter 47. So let's see what this says here. Isaiah 47. Descend and sit in the dust, kingdom of the congregation of Babylon. Sit on the ground. There is no throne of glory, kingdom of the Chaldeans. For thou shalt no more be called tender and delicate. Receive this calamity and go into servitude. Put away the glory of thy kingdom. Thy princes are overthrown. The people of thy armies are scattered. They have vanished away like waters of the river. Thy nakedness shall be uncovered. Thy shame shall be seen. I will take full vengeance on thee, and I will change thy judgment from, from the children of men. As for our Redeemer, Yahuwah of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Yasharel. Sit thou silent and get thee into darkness, O glory of the kingdom of Chaldeans. Thou shalt no more be called the mighty one of the kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have polluted mine inheritance and give the, given them into thine hand. Thou hast not had compassion upon them. Thou didst make thy dominion over the ancient very cruel. So nakedness shall be uncovered, going into servitude, polluting the inheritance, and so on. 
interesting correlations. And anyhow, Reuben personally attests to the fact that Yaakov never had sex with his concubine again in the Testament of Reuben. We read, this comes from the Testament of Reuben, chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. And now, my children, love the truth, and it will preserve you. Hear ye the words of Reuben your father. Pay no heed to the face of a woman, nor associate with another man's wife, nor meddle with affairs of womankind. For had I not seen Bilhah bathing in a covered place, I had not fallen into this great iniquity. For my mind, taking in the thought of the woman's nakedness, suffered me not to sleep until I had wrought the abominable thing. For when Yaakov, our father, had gone to um, Isaac, his father, when we were in Eder, near to um, Ephrath, in Bethlehem, Bilhah became drunk and was asleep uncovered in her chamber. Having therefore gone in and beheld nakedness, I wrought the impiety without her perceiving it. And leaving her sleeping, I departed. And forthwith an angel of Elohim revealed to my father concerning my impiety. And he came and mourned over me and touched her no more. Someone will surely tell me that these texts, Jubilees and Reuben, do not agree with the other, as Jacob is informed in two separate ways. Perhaps so. That is not to say, however, that an angel could not tell him about it while he was occupied elsewhere before Bilhah came to consciousness. Bilhah could still very well confess to Reuben's actions, actions afterwards once he finally got around to approaching her. You tell me. Scripture is often written from different perspectives. Jubilees belonging to Bilhah and Reuben to Yaakov. That still begs the question, how was Noah knowledgeable of the fact that Ham was raping his wife, but remained incapable of doing anything about it? Well, sleep paralysis. Noah knew what was happening in his sleep and remained bound to the bed. The encounter likely involved demons, as they most often do. As a refresher, demons are the disembodied spirits of the ancient giants. Their fleshly vehicles were destroyed during the flood, but the unclean Ruachs remained to torment and want and wander. Jubilee 727 records that the demons had begun their seduction of humanity all over again, nearly as soon as they stepped foot off the ark. The writings of Abraham says Noah knew of Ham's sin while it was happening through a dream. So that's kind of interesting. Same difference, unless another text can prove otherwise. Ham invited unclean Ruach into Noah's tent and held his father hostage to them while he gazed upon Emzara, unskirted, and followed through with his desire. We started out with a reading from the Masoretic Hebrew, Genesis 9, 20-27. Now let us revisit with fresh eyes the same passage as given to us in the Targum, the Aramaic Targum. Are you ready? I am. Then let's dive in to the deep end of the pool. So refreshing to know the truth. So this comes from, again, uh, the same passage in Genesis uh, 9, 20-27, but this comes from the Aramaic Targum. And Noah began to be a man working in the earth, and he found a vine which the river had brought away from the Garden of Eden. And he planted it in a vineyard, and it flourished in a day, and its grapes became ripe, and he pressed them out. Um, I'm going to, in the coming weeks, I'm going to do a whole paper um, that's going to be uh, focused on this vine. And this vine shows up, interestingly enough, in 3rd Baruch uh, as the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil uh, that actually Satan planted in paradise. Okay, so, but, and 3rd and, and Baruch says the same story. So just crazy, the connections. And I'll let you guys decide that for yourselves. 
And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he made himself naked in the midst of his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, beheld the nakedness of his father, and showed to his brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a mantle, and bare it upon the shoulders of each, and went backwards, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned back, and the nakedness of their father they did not behold. And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew by the relation of a dream what had been done to him by Ham his son, who was inferior in worth, on the account that he had not begotten a fourth son. There it is. And he said, A curse is Canaan, who is his fourth son. A serving servant shall he be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be Yahuwah, the Elohim Hashem, whose work is righteous, and therefore shall Canaan be servant unto him. Yahuwah shall beautify the borders of Japheth, and his son shall be proselyted and dwell in the schools of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant to them. So how many sons did Noah have? Well, he had four sons. Up until this point, you have only eaten cake as I have withheld the icing. But that is also because I chose to save the best for last. But no longer. The Genesis Targum says that Noah had not begotten a fourth son, and yet a fourth child was born. You know the names of his first three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The other was Canaan. So thus concludes the sin of Ham, or the curse of Ham, finally explained. Um, so... I just like to point out, uh, anyone could jump in at this point. Uh, class is uh, dismissed or out of session. That uh, I cannot find anywhere in scripture where it says that actually, like a son actually seeing his father naked is a sin. All right. Um, I, I don't, someone would really have to make a case for that. Like, Again, it's a euphemism. Like so, people say this all the time. Like they they think that Shem and Japheth were like, oh no, we really can't see our father naked. I mean, they may have bathed with him. They may have uh, gone swimming with him. I mean, if you ever go to cultures all over the world, um, you know, like guys will get together and they go swimming naked. And I I don't believe that's a sin. And I don't think that that's the picture being formed here. They were covering their father's nakedness which was the terrible action that had been uh, that had happened to Noah's wife. And then Noah wakes up and he sees the two sons that actually tried to rectify um, a, a very shameful situation. And, you know, he was pleased with it. So, um, well, yeah, is being naked even bad, though? Um, I, I've pointed out that... Um, I, I really should make a case for this stronger that um, I'm fully convinced that Adam and Hava or Adam and Eve were fully clothed in the garden. Um, all that like, uh, <laughs> like we give our children all this stuff like this, uh, I know, like erotic imagery of, you know, them like, you know, like there's just like a little tiny like branch, like, you know, down here. Um, but the, the Targum makes very clear that when they were, uh, naked, it's because they were they were derobed. Uh, they they could had robes mean, on. Could also mean innocence. It could mean innocence, but um, it's interesting that when um, Rob and uh, Michael were the ones that actually 
blew my mind on this when they showed that the the people who are clothed in heaven in the robes that 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 robe the clothing is actually the ruach hakodesh and so you can see that two things happen with adam and Hava. one is that they disrobed the, the, the targum says that it says that they wore robes and they took them off and now they were naked keep in mind that um the well yeah i'd have to go back and look at the text but when it it it, it never says that a, a a man and a woman were never it never says that it actually if you pay attention to the uh the hebrew masoretic text just in your normal Bibles, it, it didn't actually say that Adam and Eve were naked. It said that uh, that you know they they would be naked together. They would have children together. The context of they have children, but it didn't mean that like they were just walking around naked. Like any guy here, and I, I don't mean be graphic, but like any guy, like I, I I don't know how they would be comfortable to a woman or to a man. Like you know, feeling the breeze down there, it's not always pleasant, and you know you need support. Um, and so I don't. I, I just don't believe they were created that way at all. But so you see two things happening. You see them actually derobed uh, because of the sin of the serpent, um, the serpent seed narrative. But also the Ruach HaKodesh has now uh, parted from them in their sin. And so you see two things happening. Yeah, you, you got that right. It, because it, in Book of Adam and Eve, it talks about them. Uh, I can't remember the terminology, but it was them losing their glory. Uh, and yeah. that was the the ruach or the 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 spirit upon them. So they they used to shine, and then that that quote clothing was uh, taken away. So yeah, and I have um, I haven't read that for you guys yet, but you can find it on my website, um, the unexpected cosmology on uh, the serpent seed, uh, according to the target, whatever. And I take you through and I show you that the Hebrew Masoretic. It, it, it's one of those things that we come at it with the the. The lenses that we think they're naked in the garden all the time—it's uh, like this, like erotic, you know, thing. And so when we see the naked passage, we think, "Oh, they just were all the time." But it doesn't actually say that. It not even—it uh, doesn't say that in either text. It just the the idea that a man would uh, not a man would know his woman and not feel shame. But that but the problem was is that all of a sudden Adam and Eve were naked and they felt shame. So beforehand they could they could be naked together and not feel shame. But all of a sudden it's like, well, why are they feeling shame now? Um, so no. you're putting, go ahead. Yeah. Um, you can finish your thought. I had something to uh, add after you're done. No, I was going to go off in a different er uh, direction. Okay. What I wanted to share was uh, to Tabitha's question. When, when you were reading all of the uncovering the nakedness, it, it seemed to be referring to pretty much, um the father's nakedness or the man's nakedness uh to that to that aspect it didn't seem like it was uh the other way around and i i, I don't recall off the top of my head that it states the other way around in any scriptures do you have any anything that you recall because i do have something well, but it's not in the in the canon uh yeah so give me an uh, an example of what you're thinking like a uh, like well, I, yeah, I'll, I'll read this. It's from the fragments of the uh, Zadokite work, and it's uh, chapter 7, verse 11. It says, um, so the law of intercourse for males is written, and the same law holds for females. And let not the daughter 
of the brother uncover the nakedness of the brother of her father. He is near of kin. So it's like the opposite of what you read with, you know, the 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 male to the to the uh, nakedness of the father. Yeah, I guess I, 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 so just read that one line again. What, what was different about it? Uh, and let not the daughter of thy brother uncover the nakedness of the okay. brother of her father. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. It's reverse. Yeah. So the same, well, th that's interesting because um, my wife points out that so we've done three cycles now in in torah we are now starting we have started our fourth cycle our fourth annual cycle of going through torah and she has had the observation recently she she's like wait a second i think i think this whole thing is written to men like <laughs> it, it kind of is like there's 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 right. not there's hardly any commands in all of torah that are written towards women and uh it, it's Basically, like my understanding uh, is that a woman's role is to uh, encourage her man to be obedient to Torah, um, but that's that's kind of it. Like the man, it's 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 all on the guy. Like it's up to you. Like you you've it. You're the head of the household, and you're the one that's going to save the household uh, or bring it to destruction. And so, uh, but that that's interesting because yeah, that um, and it, does that come from the Dead Sea Scrolls? It is found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Was that part of like the, um, uh, you want to call them the Essenes or, you know, if that's a myth or whoever lived there, was that a part of their specific literature or does that seem like that was a broader book? Uh, I didn't dig deep into it. I just know that the manuscripts were found in Dead Sea and also in, in Cairo. Uh, and C.H. Uh, or R.H. Charles, he did, he did, um, translate them too so there's work out there in it you can find it in apocryphal books uh that are out there mm -hmm. um i dropped it in the chat the part yeah you guys are there's a lot of really quiet people in here tonight i guess uh <laughs> if anyone has anything else that stuck out to them any other scripture passages um I'm 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 curious about, so you read all the Leviticus commands, and, you know, in the Targum, it says, like, Adam was put in the garden to keep the commandments. So how does the, the procreation of mankind occur in light of the Torah around having sex with your siblings and all that stuff? Um, repeat the question. I'm not sure. Well, basically, like if Adam and Eve are having kids, and then their kids are having kids, and their kids are having mm -hmm. kids, that's against everything you read in Leviticus. Are you into the like two creation event theory, or like? Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, I I did write an article on it that there are um, it, it's called the two creation contradiction, and I don't think I I did an episode on that uh yet here. It came out like uh, four weeks ago, maybe, on the website, uh, in which I show that there are, uh, I do believe that there um, are, there's the, what we, what we might call the six-day man and then the eighth-day man. Um, and I, I, whether, when Adam, it, I think he was created on the sixth day, but it's, it's a way to, 
distinguish because we have the original creation of men on the, you know, just general men and women on the sixth day of creation. But then it starts again and it talks about paradise and how uh, Adam was created specifically in paradise. Um, And so, yeah, I I believe that they were, there were, I think that I, I see no reason to believe that there weren't other people on the earth. And in fact, uh, we see that uh, heaven and earth are connected, right? As above, so below on earth as it is in heaven, that Adam being in paradise in the third heaven was intended to be a priest, I believe, of humanity, not just the animals, but actually over all the people. He was supposed to be the high priest. And now the to answer your question, though, and there are a few things in Torah that um, uh, I can't make sense of, is that Everything I read in all Edemic literature, um, even in Jasher and others, it all implies that Cain and uh, Abel never married. He was intended to marry, but Cain and Abel and then uh, Seth, they married their sisters. Um, that they, they weren't just like hired on women that came from other people, that they were literally. And in fact, um, so there's, um, I'm not holding up an occult sign here. I'm just giving you the number two. There's two. <laughs> Uh, two big mysteries. When I'm bringing all these books together and I'm trying to figure out, there's two things that I haven't worked out yet. One is what we talked about tonight was the very bizarre order of Noah's three sons, how they change in whatever book you read, they change. And there's only so many variations you can do with three sons, but they're always different. And the other one is um, Cain and Abel. Uh, Were Cain and Abel twins? Were they... um, uh, were they triplets? Were they quadruplets? Um, or were they singletons? And and when you read the book of Adam and Eve, for example, the first book of Adam and Eve, it appears that uh, Abel had a twin and um, and Cain had a twin. So they each had a, a sister born with them. And Adam and Eve intended for Abel's twin to marry uh, Cain and for Cain's twin to marry Abel, but Cain actually wanted didn't want to marry Abel's twin. He wanted to marry his own uh, womb mate, his own sister. And these are the that's the other thing that I haven't really I, I've been trying to work on and try to figure out and problem solve. Um, what's going on here? Were there did did Adam and Eve uh, give birth to four children the first time? Um, does that make sense? Or were they, because you, you read Jasher and it looks like uh, they may have been triplets or might've been one sister. I don't know. Like there's all these different tellings. It's hard to say, but anyways. Well, no, that's interesting. Cause my father is a twin with a female. Well, yeah, I mean, you have, you have, you can have, um, you know, obviously as you guys know, all the know there's fraternal and there's identical twins. Um, Cain and Abel were not um, identical twins. Um, they, you know, even if it was just Cain and his sister, they would have been fraternal. And then if it was Abel and his sister, they were fraternal. If Cain, Abel, and their two sisters, that one of them was named Lalua. I can't remember the other one at the moment. Um, but they would have all been fraternal as well. They obviously would not have been identical. Now, the other thing that I'm looking at is I, I, I was having this discussion with my wife today, you know, my research partner. And we're looking at the Aramaic Targum. And it says uh, that Abel was... Uh, the twin, 
and we're trying to figure out does it mean the twin of Cain or the twin of Adam? Uh, because it specifically says a couple of lines later that Abel looked just like Adam, but Cain did not, meaning that he's the son of Satan. Um, so I, I don't know. It's it, it's maybe one of those mysteries. Have- yeah, maybe it's the word. I'm not sure, but like spitting image. Yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to figure out because I I just I, you guys like I'm just. I, I want it to say what it says, right? And that's what I'm trying to figure out. It would be easy for me to say, oh, yeah, it just Abel is the twin, the spitting image of Adam, which it does say that a few lines later. It implies Adam, he looks he looks down at uh, Cain, and then he looks down at Abel, and he's like, Cain doesn't look like me, and I know how that happens. And Abel looks like my spitting image. Like, this is clearly my son. Well, so, what's interesting is, if you think about today, and there's some studies being come out, that, and I even heard from um, people from Russia even say something in the line that 30 to 40% of children today are not with their biological father. It was somebody else. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying. It's not a small number. And then yeah, you think that's... of the world, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I I get it though. Like a lot of uh, a lot of couples divorce and they remarry, and if it's just like if it's taking the numbers, uh, I mean, that doesn't sound as bad to me. If if it's written in such a way that it's like literally thirty to forty percent, <coughs> excuse me, like they think that that's their father, but it's really not. That's a high number. So yeah, I had a friend in high school in college, and it wasn't until he was in university, he um, we used to always look at his sister and go what's up with your sister? And he goes, no, it's not my sister. It's I'm the one who don't look like my parents. And, and then he found out after he graduated, he remember he told, he came running across the street and actually told my mother first um, because I wasn't there. And, and his mother finally told him, that's not your father. Your father was, um, I was in Hawaii. She was in Hawaii and met a Filipino. And um, that was him. And he was, you know, his his father who raised him, he still considers him a father, but it finally, you know, opened up like, okay, I, I'm I not the um so strange, you know, I and mean, why am I brown and am all my family white? And well, the truth, but he didn't know. He just thought he was the um random, you know, like gene that he got some like that. So when the truth finally came out, it was more of a relief to him. He wasn't upset or anything, it was more relief and it didn't and so it's like, oh, maybe this is a lot more common. Yeah. Especially when we know about the world today, the 50s, the 60s, not necessarily the 50s, but the 60s and 70s. And Hasatan has always been after the family. Break them up. Yeah. Can I go back to the first article? I've been noodling around this thought for like an hour. Sure. Uh, I was just thinking about... Um, you know, like the abortion thing and how it has to do with souls being born for the consummation of the world. Do you think that like the war on polygyny is related to that? Like if men yes. aren't spreading their seed everywhere, like could that be the motive? Yes. And this is where, and I'm, 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 I really am sorry to 
maybe you know th so this is where it's like i start talking about polygony and, and immediately i lose subscribers i lose administrators people just like like i'm like please just hang with me please you know but um i i that is my thought that they're they are at war uh this is going to sound completely backwards to the american idea of the family but it is at war with the family it is at war with the kingdom uh what men are able to perhaps accomplish if they have multiple help meets um and see this is the problem everyone thinks this is just like you know sex or whatever uh but it's that's that's not what you see in scripture for the reason of polygamy um and but there there is there's probably that as well i mean we see this the whole um obviously i don't i don't know how it all works but well the examples Satan, we have are mormonism and islam yeah that that say multiple wives and if you go into it they literally explain it in that way it's like about fruitful and multiply and yeah. it's just like okay i uh the only time i ever stepped foot onto a polygonous compound was when i was in east africa and it was a maasai village and i walked on and i was terrified it was one it was one guy who had uh, uh five wives and he so he had a, a house or a hut for each wife but he had like like this was like old mother hubbard like you know like just kids everywhere i mean there was you know 20 30 kids i don't know how many and they were like there was no adult anywhere. They were just running around. And I remember like this, these little kids, they had bow and arrows, like real bow and arrows. And they're like four or five years old. And they're coming up and holding them up to me. And I'm like, I don't know if you kids are playing or if you're serious, but if you let go of that thing, that's going through my heart. Uh, so <clears throat> that's been my only experience with that. But yeah, they had, a, they had a lot of kids too. And th there's, but I, I think that the bigger picture, Dave, is that it's not just, uh, the number of kids you would have with a multitude of wives. I, I really think it's um, you, every single time and test me on this, like show me a polygonist family or household that is just like plugged into the matrix and they're like on board with the game and, you know, they're, they're taking their vaccinations like a good boy. And they're, you know, it's like, no, like most of these people um, you, you go to uh to Utah, and I, we went out there. My wife and I visited a friend out there um, uh, several years back uh, before we had kids. And some of their neighbors were actually polygonists on these huge compounds. But you go into their houses there, and they're all like prepared for doomsday. They they build they these polygonous people. They build their houses where they have. Uh, the first level you walk into, they might have a second level, but they all have an underground level that is as huge as these homes. And these are so big. Sometimes they'll be two layers down, and they're so big you can ride like in the like in the Shining. You can ride a bike just around the house down there. It's so huge, and it's all stocked up for the apocalypse. Um, these families are very distrusting of governments of you know and that it, the the uh, um the establishment any kind of organization and that's what they can't have that's what the roman catholic church can't have what's what the american government can't have and that's why they're constantly uh you know pushing this this uh roman idea of romance saint valentine's day 
and and so on and so forth. And then it's actually awful. It, you know, they're controlling the whole narrative. I want to do this whole thing on how relationships have developed based on pop songs, and how when uh, you start seeing like they start in the 1940s and 50s and they start pushing out all these uh, breakup songs and they became huge and like every song is just about breaking up with somebody. Um, it's almost like it started materializing where people just started breaking up with their, their lovers and their spouses and, you know, and it just well, started destroying everything. And that's the plan. Well, just way, destroy the family. Right. So one way, if you look at it, if someone has had multiple partners over their life, um, it's like, What's the difference if somebody's having it at once? And I'm like, in one way, it's similar. It's just happened to be spread out over time. And another interesting side note, they have a whole TV show called Sister Wives that they've been, <laughs> my mother was telling me about. About, I was like, how do they have this on the TV? And yeah, they've, they've, they've exposed, they've shown it. And I don't know which way they're trying to twist it. But they've put it out there. I've discussed another example of this to some some people uh, to think about this this thought that the government somewhat supports this because if you were to be married to some, let's just use an example. If I'm married to a woman for X amount of years, 17, 20 years, whatever it is in in my state, and get divorced, well, now I got to support her the rest of my life you know, permanent alimony. So technically I'm financially supporting her as a regular wife, but getting no support benefits, anything of having someone within the house and helping and this and that. And now I'm, I'm just financially supporting that person. So the, with the laws, the way they are that, I mean, it's, it's basically, basically set up that way because if I was to remarry or that person was to remarry, then you're supporting that woman and the last woman. So, you know, you got to think about that. That's a very good point. Yeah, what, what, a, what a very backwards world we live in, too. Yeah, I would. I mean, in that scenario, it'd be better to be married to both. Uh, well, obviously. Okay, maybe, share maybe, that one again. <laughs> it'd be b better to be married to, you know, two women that were on the same that <laughs> being divorced and paying and all that stuff. That's all I'm saying. Oh, and then getting and remarrying and then, you know, you, yeah. I've been, well, yeah, you know, you yeah, like I said, that scenario, you're financially supporting uh, two people, two, yeah. quote, two people and, you know, only living with one. Right. Yeah. And only getting one as a, as a helpmate too, you know, like, you know, helping around the house and that kind of stuff. And, um, and it's, it's just a lot of the things we've lost through the years of, the way households used to work where you're, you know, um, and I get in a lot of ways, I think my wife and I have a sense of that where, cause we're, we're never more than like 10 feet apart. She's just, of course, in the other room sleeping right now. Um, but, uh, like you, you can see where I'm working right now, where I'm set up in, in our fifth wheel, like her desk is right behind me over here. And, uh, we're just, you know, everything we do is, is a partnership and so on and so forth. But, that you know it, that's what wives used to be they used to be a helpmate you would you would bring them on to help run the farm help run the business you know and all that kind of stuff it, it, it when we're living in these um these suburban homes and the way they set up the slavery for us 
and these and these grids and all that. It doesn't make sense anymore. And you think like, how could someone live like that? But um, it's just everything is backwards now. Um, no. Well, I don't know. Um, it is ten o'clock, and so I'm gonna. With that, I think it's let's just officially close. And then, if anybody wants to, you know, continue talking, I know I know somebody here wants to talk about mud flood. I know it's it's gonna come up. Uh, but let's just officially close. And um, would someone like to cl uh, close in prayer? Anybody? I can if no one else does. Yeah, please, Rob. Just close us in prayer. All right, thank you, Father, for having this time together in fellowship and, and seeking out truth and, and reviewing scriptures and examining them and uh, pulling, pulling this information together for everyone to look it up themselves. May everyone here examine this information, not take everything that is being told as as quote gospel truth but take it and examine it see where the spirit leads you with this information and father we're so uh thankful that noel can be able to share this his his uh findings and his thoughts that we can further take this and uh, go further down the road with it father we ask that you bless each and every one here listening and may each and every one of us continue to seek out the truth in love we ask this in Yahushua's name. Hallelujah. Before anyone uh, jumps in and starts talking about something else, I will point out that uh, if you, it, it was interesting. It was a little bit of um, a jarring for me to read the the article that was unedited uh, online that I hadn't edited since I put it online, and I think I came out. I wrote that last April or something like that, but. If you compare with the one, the more recent one uh, that was published like three or four weeks ago, you see how far I've come in just so many um, uh, months where just like with like names and things like that, like, you know, I, back to, I was calling him Jacob. Now I say Yaakov. Um, just, it's just interesting to see um, how the work progresses and stuff. So. All right. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Yeah, if John, uh, I think he just left. Yeah. Uh, bye, John. And uh, whoever is, needs to sign out, uh, see you guys next week or uh, this Sabbath in two days. Shalom. Yeah, I'm signing off uh, for now. And everyone have a great evening. See you in uh, on Saturday evening. Shalom. Shalom. So were you like good on Jubilees now? Um, oh. I've never been. Uh, Jubilees has always been a book that yeah, I am wrestling with the book. Um, it's probably not for the reasons that uh, you think. Like I, I'm not wrestling for like the two big things that, you know, uh, people don't like. But there are some things about Enoch where it's like, a supernatural book like it's clearly everything in there is is like from an angelic perspective and then of all the books that you would think that they would have enoch ascend to heaven they're like um oh and then enoch died and you're like wait what like what do you how, how do you rectify that with the rest of scripture like was his ascent to heaven his death like how does that work 
And so there are things about Jubilees. Most of the problems I find with the extra biblical books of the major ones, I find more with Jubilees. But the thing is, is though that the more I wrestle with something, the more I'm able to kind of um, find some amazing things. So I'm not, I've never dropped Jubilees. Um, I'm still, I'm still using, I think that there's a lot of gems in it, whether or not it's legitimate or not. I think that there's a lot of historical knowledge to it. If I had to, you know, choose whether either Jasher or Jubilees, um, I would take Jasher immediately if it had to be one or the other. Ooh, I'll take my turn. Hey, great, uh, great presentation tonight. And, and in the back of my mind, since you said back in April, did you happen to share back in April, because I was like, I've heard this before. And maybe that's just because, uh, I don't know. Um, yes. Some of this, um, I'm trying to think what I wrote when I was, I stayed at, uh, Dave's house in New Hampshire and I wrote the, um, I need to share, share that one, Dave. I wrote the, uh, the original serpent seed paper at your house, um, while we were staying there. But, um, this one is the I think this the, the article we wrote on on uh, your father's nakedness was a result of us in our Targum series that we were going through and if you guys recall it was when we were reading Genesis chapter uh, what was it chapter 9 or whatever it is and I was like oh my goodness we're like I saw it the first time where it said that no, that Noah that he had a fourth son and I was just That's like yeah, and that's where it all came together for me. And I'm like, I had never seen that before. And so, um, okay. And then, okay, Josh, you're asking, can you clarify the order speculated here? Um, oh, order of birth. Um, and her name was Imzara, the daughter of Rekael, the daughter of his father's brother, in the first year and the fifth week. And in the third year thereof, she bore him Shem. In the fifth year, she bore him Ham. And the sixth year uh, bore him Yapeth. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. They're, all the orders are different every time. Uh, that's all I can say. I, I. Oh, no week. Hello. I. Uh, Who said hello? Go ahead. Sorry, I, I have a question, and it's un unrelated. Again, I, I wish I could add on, but I, I don't have anything to add. Um, at the moment, we're both uh, young in our walk. But uh, I come across uh, some Torah channels of people who are really into the Paleo-Hebrew letters and the the Aleph Bet, the 22 letters. And some people will take that as far as to um, have a theory that that this is the creator's language and that understanding scripture through the perspective of the ancient Hebrew letters um, will unravel a whole new understanding and um, that when we are to like seek his face um, and like uh, meditate on his words that um, also like could imply that like understanding each and every letter um and how there is like multiple meanings within each and every letter, even within a word. And, and people can go on and on endlessly with that. I just want to know what you think of that, because if it is the original language and it is like our, if it is like Yahoo's character, 
um, like me and my wife is, uh, you know, people in our young 20s looking to have kids soon. Um, it's like, why wouldn't we then, you know, teach our kids Hebrew and, and you know, speak Hebrew in our house? And it, it's just, it's all kind of daunting to me. And I, uh, you know, ha I haven't spent enough time studying to, uh, to, to really flesh out my thoughts on it. But I'm wondering if you've come across channels like this where people have um, similar takes. So in this group right now, uh, Pamela is here. I'm not sure if she's still listening or not, but I see her uh, name there. She is doing a series on Unexpected Cosmology. It's published every Friday called The Psalm Project, in which she is translating, going through and translating the Psalms into English using the Paleo-Hebrew uh, like as literally as possible. And I love this project because when you go and compare her psalms to the psalms we get in the Hebrew Masoretic, it is um, night and day difference, and they are complete, very beautiful. Uh, two weeks ago, she gave, I think it was two weeks ago, she gave a presentation on this. And you are absolutely correct that in every single word, they have letters, and the letters themselves are like its own word. And so like uh like the first letter of genesis uh the, the each book of torah is named after the like the kind of like the first letter or phrase and so beersheath is the first it's in the beginning in Gen uh that's what genesis means in the beginning and you just go through there and she was pointing out how the messiah is actually encoded in there the sun you know and so i would i would encourage you i'm not you know whether you want to speak Hebrew in your household or not is is up to you. But I I would encourage you. Yeah, I mean, if you're you're a young spring chicken and you <laughs> want to learn Paleo Hebrew, do it. Um, I have right now. I'm on the beach and I have a a, a stick that Dave uh, uh, made for me, and he encoded uh, the first commandment uh, of Paleo Hebrew on there. And I was sitting up there having a fire with my uh, wife before this this uh, program, and I was sitting out there, and we were staring at the stick, um, and I call it my demon smashing stick, and and I was like, I really want to learn Paleo Hebrew, I really do, and it it looks like it, it, I would imagine you know Aramaic and Hebrew to be really complicated, but Paleo Hebrew, it's 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 these like word pictures that it seems like once you can decode those that even if you don't become a master at it, like things will start popping out at you. So, yeah, and there's, and, and Pamela's whole point in the presentation was that because uh, modern Hebrew with it being box letters and stuff, there's not as much meaning in it. But the, the original Paleo Hebrew, there was tons of just things that are lost to us that were, you know, being conveyed. Yeah, and I, and I wonder, um, I, I don't know how to, I don't want to sound like too ignorant on, on this or anything, but when I listen to modern Hebrew uh, spoke, uh, it, it can almost sound um, guttural and harsh at times. And don't get me wrong, I think overall it's it's a beautiful language, but like how uh, Swiss is like a dialect of German, or, or maybe there's better examples. Um, perhaps there's um, a difference in... Uh, you know the, the the speech and how it's even even spoken. Um, there's just so much to yet to understand, but um, that is that's kind of where I'm at right now. And uh, 
that that is what the path I'm interested in in uh, going down. I'm, I'm slowly uh, learning more about these letters. And you'll you'll learn you'll hear a lot from like historians and you know the others that they say that Hebrew was actually ripped off from um, the um, uh, the Canaanite language or the um, uh, the Phoenician language. Uh, that that came first, and I, I say that's ridiculous. When you look at the narrative of the Bible with the dispersion of the tongues, uh, when Abram showed up in the land of Canaan, who was already there? But Noah and Shem. They were li- th- these were the first two that stepped foot off the ark. Noah and Shem. They were carrying the old language with them into the new world, and Noah and Shem were the fathers of everybody. They had to be in immensely immensely uh influential on everybody that people knew who they were according to um uh, the epic of gilgamesh you see gilgamesh going on a trip to go meet noah right and abraham was super influential and so i i see it the other way around i think that the phoenician language and the canaanite language and those developed as a result of shem abraham's and um noah's influence out there so I just wanted to kind of give that perspective because you're going to get that a lot. Even in the Torah community, there's a lot in the Torah community who believe that that Hebrew really came from, uh, it was just a ripoff of the local languages there. I'm just like, what are you guys reading your Bible? Like, do you believe what it says? Because that's not what I, what I get from reading Genesis. Yeah, I've heard similar arguments and they've kind of thrown me off uh, a little bit. And um, I, 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 I tend to agree with you and um I've, I've seen some of like old sanskrit and whatnot which people claim what you know is older or whatever uh and i i can see some similarities uh, that that's all i'll say but uh, i i appreciate uh, uh your thoughts can you guys hear me yes perfectly oh well Oh, I've had the worst tr- trouble tonight. Um, I do have a question on something that you had talked about with Noah, and that's King Og. What is the deal with King Og? I've heard references to King Og, and I don't understand what, what, what it's about. Could you just give me kind of the, the cliff notes on what is King Og? I, I'm guessing he's a giant that somehow survived the flood, and I don't understand. So King Og was uh, called King of Bashan. He ruled um, around the areas of King uh, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is the location where the Watchers came down uh, and made the pact, the 200 of them, that they were going to take on human wives. Um, And so, so King Og, he picks up, maybe it's numbers, maybe he shows up. I think, yeah, numbers, I think it is. When they're, uh, the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and they finally go to, they go to war with King Og and uh, he was about a 20-footer, a 20-foot giant, which is pretty big. Uh, Goliath was anywhere from like 9 to 12 feet. So he was, you know, he was one of the later giants and he was about half the size of Og. And, you know, the Og, uh, the giants before the, uh, before the flood, which Og lived, uh, he would have been one of the smaller giants. They were much bigger before the flood. So Og had a very, very big empire there in the Canaan area, and he was one of those that was at war with Nimrod. And so what Nimrod was doing was he was having a lot of children, and he would plant his children on different thrones. Like we see that Pharaoh uh, in Egypt, his daughter was actually Hagar. 
Uh, interestingly enough, she was a princess who Abraham had Ishmael with. Uh, Pharaoh was a son of Nimrod. Uh, Eliezer, who was Abraham's main man, who he was going to hand uh, his inheritance over to, he was a son of Nimrod. But Nimrod is having these children, and he's planning them all over. And uh, it's the, was it the Genesis 13 war, where um, Nimrod is at war with Og's empire. And Og hated Nimrod uh, passionately. And so there's this book that came out a few years ago. It was released by the Vatican in their vault. And, you know, everything that, you know, comes out, out of the Vatican is suspicious um, on one hand. But on the other hand, you know, they have, I believe they have tons of books down there that, it, you know, they suddenly discover. Anyways, King Og, according to the Lost Book of King Og, claims that he was alive before the flood. And it's a fascinating read because he talks about the 100,000 giant war. That when the floodwaters were coming up, there was a, a war between 100,000 giants uh, warring with each other. And it's this epic battle from like Lord of the Rings where they're actually like sitting demons into other giants to kill them. And it's just this epic battle. 